Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm so excited that you're joining us today. We are going to have a fascinating conversation, as usual, as we learn from people all around the world at all ages and stages of life. Stay tuned as we shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort. Well, hi, everyone, and welcome back to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay. And for those of you that are new to our show, we're about sound information, not just sound bites. I know what it's like being in the trenches. My mom had dementia for 30 years. And so our whole goal here is to raise everyone's voice from those diagnosed to those that care and serve them, advocates, researchers, and more, and people all around the world. You see, it's our stories that help support one another, give each other ideas, and make us feel not alone. You can call in and join the conversation if you'd like today at 323-870-4602. And um, I want to thank our listeners. Uh, our community here is just so um, such a blessing to me. You really help build this sense of community and collaboration and comfort so that we can really fight this battle together regarding dementia. Now, today we are going to be talking with um, a husband who cared for his wife with early onset Alzheimer's disease, and they also had some young teenage boys. And so he's going to share his story, and he's written a book, and share that with us in just a bit. But before I introduce you to Joe, I want to do a couple of shout outs. One is to the Memory Cafe directory. If you are looking for uh, some peers, um, you can now connect virtually by going to the, um, the uh, Memory Cafe directory. And uh, we have a couple of them that I do here in Minnesota, but anybody around the world is more than welcome because all the cafes nowadays are Yep, virtual. And so actually tomorrow we'll be doing um, Arthur's Memory Cafe. We do that the second and fourth Wednesday of each month at 1 o'clock uh, Central Time. And then with Artist Way, their Memory Cafe will be on the third Wednesday of each month at 1 o'clock. So if you're interested, just give me a, a jingle on that. You know, reach out to me via the radio show, or you can always email me at lori, L-O-R-I, at alzheimerspeaks.com. I also want to um, give a shout out to Coral Health because they are doing such a wonderful job and being so kind to allow people to download their apps um, for both Music First and Coral Faith. And uh, I would be amiss if I didn't mention Dementia Map. I'm so excited about this. Um, Dave Wiedrich and I, uh, Dave is the one who has the Memory Cafe directories in five different countries, um, put this together. It's been a dream of mine for 36 years. And we want this to be easy for both families and professionals to find the resources, be able to connect people directly to what it is they need. It also has a calendar of events. And we share our audience um, with our paid subscribers um, through banner ads, the event calendar, and being able to post blogs as well. But you know what? Everybody appears um, equal. And so if you don't have a budget, that doesn't mean you're not important. Your service product or tool is still needed by many out there. So check out DementiaMap.com and see what you think. You can sign up for a virtual tour, um, and I would be more than more than happy to uh, to set that up with you and show you what all there is in terms of benefits. Um, some of our recent shows that we had, we just had uh, Chris Brickler on, who is the CEO of Mind VR, which was all about virtual reality and what he's doing in the senior housing and dementia market. We also had the Motion Picture and TV Foundation on and what they're doing with Harry's Haven. Um, we had Bob Savage on, who's living with dementia, and Jack Russell, who is caring for his daughter 
dementia and how he developed his kind of sacred circle of care. All of them are really fascinating shows. So, you know, we've been doing this since uh, 2011, so there's lots to listen for. Um, Upcoming shows, we're going to have Oakley Senior Living on, talking about their memory care and how they're dealing with disruption and care plans and COVID. We are also going to have the author, uh, Terry Bumgardner, on on the 15th. And then we're going to have on the 17th, uh, two caregivers who actually I went to school with who have uh, gone through this whole experience as well. So um, I know that's going to be a very fun uh, conversation. And last, I want to shout out to two different companies. One is Dementia Action Alliance. If you go to daanow.org, you'll find out about their online programs. And they are offering two One for those who are living at home with dementia, and the other is for people living in an assisted living. We're going to wrap up here quick uh, with a uh, word from the Footbar Walker. We'll be right back to introduce you to Joe. Introducing the life-changing Footbar Walker. I'm Peggy from Danville, Kentucky, and I'm 91 years old. The Footbar Walker revolutionized my care of George. The saving that I made from having to put him in a nursing home came to about $192,000. The Footbar Walker opens and closes just like a standard walker. The only thing that is different is the top bar and the footbar. Does that ever make a difference? Does someone you love use a walker? Do they struggle to get up from a seated position? Are you a caregiver dealing with physical pain and stress as you help your patient? The Footbar Walker was designed to assist not only the patient, but also the caregiver. Patients have more control standing up, and no lifting from the caregiver is required. See how it works at thefootbarwalker.com. That's thefootbarwalker.com. Peggy, would you recommend the Footbar Walker? Do I ever? I would not be in the health that I'm in today at this age had it not been for the Footbar Walker. Well, welcome back, everybody. Um, I want to introduce you today to our guest, uh, Joe Brazil, who wrote a book called Living with Thunder, Alzheimer's Untold, A Family's Journey. The book is about Joe's family and their last 15-year-long struggle um, because he, he is the wife Kimberly was living with early onset dementia, and they had been married for 35 years. So 15 of that was dementia-related. The book takes you really from pre-diagnosis and dealing with the after-death effects, which nobody really likes to talk about. So I'm looking forward to this conversation with Joe as he shares his insights to living with and beyond dementia. Welcome, Joe. How are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic, and you sound good as well. Well, I am doing good. I am doing good. I'm closed up here in my house like everybody else, <laughs> but I'm, I'm, making the, I'm making the most of it for sure. Um, Joe, I want you to, to tell us a little bit about why did you decide to write this book, Living with Thunder, Alzheimer's Untold, The Family's Journey. Well, I wrote this book in hopes of being able to hand it to somebody as as I was, was, if you were, in 2002, finding myself in a place of chaos. Uh, Kimberly, unbeknownst, hadn't started her journey of insanity. Um, She probably started in 2002 is what I'm trying to say. Uh, She was 42 at the time. Our children were young. Carrie, age 12, Joseph was 8, and John was 4. So Alzheimer's is a robbery in progress, and it continues until there's just nothing left. Uh, All through this time, there was a desire to provide information to help others. So as I was going through these steps, I I always had this urge. I don't know. It was – I guess it was from the good Lord, really, because there was always this silent push to to keep track and remember this. So uh, writing emails and trying to make my way – uh, there was there was always that desire to do that. So the the idea to create the manuscript is a guide. So it, the original name was Living with Thunder: A Hitchhiker's Guide to Alzheimer's, um, and I wrote it from the perspective of having lived it. Um, there's no embellishment 
to this. I, I wrote it in a way that I would pick it up and read it. And I would encourage anybody who's starting this journey, when they start reading it, they may read it just, you know, the first month and say, well, I don't know anything about Medicaid. I don't know anything about end of life or how to deal with teenagers or pregnancy or suicide or attempts or any of those kind of things. But it, but later, if you wait a year or so and read it again, there may be more information that will make more sense. So it's a book unlike any other story. It, it's our story. Yet it's a story of, of, of any family facing this monster uh, with stories along the way covering the highlights of of getting through this journey of the lost. That, that's what I would say. So it, to take a time machine back to 2008 where I had these three children, um, six years in chaos of, of dealing with why is she doing this? Why are we having these fights? Why does me and my daughter um, – have to go into, I mean, it was just chaos, okay, because she had these headaches, and when she got these headaches, she would try to self-medicate. Well, the doctor gave her prescription pills and that kind of thing, but then she would she would drink beer or whatever, and then by that time, um, some nights it was just so crazy that, um, you know, it, it, lots of things happened in such a way that one time my daughter and I had to just go to the attic and just kind of shut the door so she couldn't know where we were. I mean, it was just that kind of chaos, and I write about those kind of things. So the idea is being able to write this manuscript and give it to somebody, a time machine, go back. If I, somebody were to give me this book and I read it, my life would have been different. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I hope that explains to you what I meant, why I did that. No, I think it makes a lot of sense. And, you know, it, the journey is one that is so unpredictable. And you just never mm -hmm. know the twists and the turns. And so even though people think, well, you know, we're handling this, 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 is, this is cool, you will most likely have those moments of what the heck is going on or what just happened, um, you know, or a feeling, you know, you might be feeling total control and comfortable, and then all of a sudden you are just zapped of energy. And, you know, things hit you or you have this sadness or whatever it might be. Um, it is really a, a, a road that people need to understand that this path exists and that real people are going through this. And every family dynamic is going to be a little, a little bit different. Um, in what way, in, in terms of how you wrote the book, do you think it's going to be, you know, stand out and, and be different from other books on the shelf? I believe it will because this is written from someone who lived it 36 hours a day as that book is out there on the market because it is a 36-hour-a-day. And it, if you write it from somebody somebody writing it that actually experienced it takes it gives a different spin on it um, a reality so the story covers from different aspects uh there there are many ideas or i should say topics that are covered because it really covers 20 years i believe that people that have that have the propensity to get alzheimer's there, there's three things i think with alzheimer's genetic environmental and stress related all of those contribute to either getting it early or never getting it all there's some case studies where people uh they're later well you know a biopsy uh, after death you know whenever they mm -hmm. do the biopsy on a body that's really the one true way. Now, you could correct me if I'm wrong. The last I heard, that's the only real true way to determine if somebody had had Alzheimer's or not. Yep, yep, that still so, stands true. Yep. So the book talks about theories. I, I believe me, it covers it's 400 and um, some odd pages with references um, in the back, 404 pages. Mm -hmm. And there's pictures in there too, so that upped the cost of it a little bit, and you know, I attempted to take to lower the cost. But in, in any event, what I want to say about that is that it covers the 20 years, everything from the initial shock to managing children, dealing with Medicaid, Social Security, end of life. And mm -hmm. as far as Alzheimer's goes, people think you know it's an old person 
disease. It's not an old person's disease. Um, in Kim's case, her mother was, um, and again, I talk about this in the book, her mother, they grew up in, in um, Murfreesboro, Arkansas, mm-hmm. and her neighbor, uh, her mother warned her about the neighbors. Said, "Now don't be going down there playing with the Campbell boys. You know they're trouble." Well, she was a she was a neighbor of Glenn Campbell, mm-hmm. and I think that was kind of, that's kind of interesting. And they grew up at the same time period. Now her father was a um, geologist, um, and and they mined cinnabar out of the Washtenaw Mountains in in World War II, and cinnabar was used in bombs and the nose of bombs to make them go go straighter, if you will. And she cleaned cinnabar. Barehanded. Now, her her relatives. So genetic, um, genetics, and genealogy are very very important to understand that. We we lose sight of that in our society, but knowing who your ancestors were is very important. What they died of, it's it's also important. Now I know that we called her Gumby. Her mother's um, family had it, but when she was a little girl, she cleaned it barehanded. So she took cheesecloth and ran mercury. And if you know what mercury is, it's the Mad Hatter's disease. Mm-hmm. Um, it, made, it made hatters go crazy in the early 1800s. Now, here's what I think. Now, Kim's mother developed it later. We would always wonder why Gumby acted so crazy. I mean, when we, would live, we lived in Little Rock. We'd drive down to El Dorado and visit her. One time, Kim was down there with the children. At 3 o'clock in the morning, she just threw everybody out of the house. For no reason, and Kim just laughed it off. I mean, that Gumby was just going nuts. I mean, she would neighbors would little kids would leave a ball in her yard. She'd take it from them, and it was just insane. We all know how insane it is. Now, I'm saying all that to say this. So, when Kim was born, I believe she was the first one of her of two. She got the the higher dose of it because I believe mercury is an element. So, does it go through the placenta? So when she was born, I think she got a higher dose of it. And Kim developed early onset, I think, at age 42, because mm-hmm. she would do, she would like to say, get developed headaches and, and those kind of things. And so that's how I think this book will help. It, it will cover all kind of things it, it, that we went through. Um, and so also know 65% of primary caregivers pass away before the people that they're caring for. So not only the environmental aspect and the genetic aspect, but stress. So if you have a DNA propensity to get Alzheimer's, stress is not going to help you. You need to keep your stress down. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you need the other thing I would say the book talks about is how to learn to accept help. You know, people will say, well, what can I do to help? You know, I understand you've got this disease. And now, I actually, I never told Kimberly she had it. What was the point? Lots of people want to know that they have it. I don't know what the latest scientific um, evidence of, oh, yeah, you've got it, you're going to have it. I mean, what's, to me, personally, it's a personal choice or a personal decision. But I think um, I wouldn't want to know. I mean, I would want to go ahead and know enough to get all my affairs in, in order and the book talks about that. God just blessed me. That's I mean, he, I'm just I, I'm not the smartest knife in the drawer. But mm-hmm. along the way, I did some right things. Um, when she first got sick back in 2008, the best decision that uh, different organizations told me, well, moving would help. So we moved from Little Rock to, to here near Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, mm-hmm. I had a chance with my employer to move. It also talks about moving um, a- among state lines because we lived here for several years, and my job was outsourced to India, so I had to find another job and found myself up in Indiana. So I talk about how to deal with Medicaid across five different states. Mm-hmm. Medicaid is um, another important aspect of dealing with this because every state is different. So it's important to get your financial affairs in order Um, and be sure to surround yourself with a support system because this can come from family, friends, the Alzheimer's Association, your church, books, nature, music, uh, exercise. The book also talks about considering uh, to secure an emotional support dog. Kim always asked me, 
would you get me a little dog? Now we had it, and I wish I had a done that. I wish I had done that, but mm-hmm. but I never did. And I would I would stress the uh, the value of having a, a dog. And mm-hmm. the other thing I want to say toward the end of her life, when she was where, where I was dealing with morphing and wheelchairs, is that I got a um, uh, MP3 player and got the music that she liked and played, and she was able to communicate. The, the, the Alzheimer's is not what killed Kim. What killed her or what took her life was lung cancer, but it was uh, directly uh, – it was the direct subsequent uh, behavior from smoking. She, she mm-hmm. oh, my gosh, you could see our car coming down the road because she had to have at least <laughs> 30 packs of cigarettes in her car, I mean in her purse. And if she didn't have enough cigarettes in her purse, she would say, do you have enough cigarettes? I need cigarettes. Do you have enough? I need, really need cigarettes. Joe, will you give me a cigarette? I don't have – mother love, that's what we call her. Mother love just does not have enough cigarettes. I need cigarettes. Oh, my gosh. Um, I don't have much hair. I mean, if you went into my uh, Facebook or whatever, I mean – most of it fell out because of stress, but stress is very important. And in, enjoy each moment. Learn to laugh, and you'll have things what I call daylight moments. Now she would revert to like a eight year old to a twenty year old, a fifty year old. But sometimes we would have these daylight moments, and and those were cherished. It's just a bizarre disease. The brain, the way that it works, the way the brain is sitting in that spinal fluid and, and the chemicals. There, there's just so much to this, and henceforth there's just not a cure at this point, but there's hope, and that's what I'm, this book will give you is hope. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it sounds like, it, you know, you mentioned so many things as we're talking, and again, it's it's all in the journey, and the journey changes and the needs change from you know, financial responsibility to physical and and mental support, Um, you know, not just for your wife, but for yourself and your individual family members and friends. I mean, everything, um, everything is affected. Uh, And I think that's one thing that some people don't understand to what extent um, dementia can affect a whole household or a whole family unit as a whole, and and we need to get a better understanding and more compassion, you know, for that. Um, Can you talk about how you've laid the book out? Um, Are there, uh, can you maybe reference some chapter names that you have in terms of how how people would find things? You know, some books you have to read from from front to, to back, you know, to get the whole drift. And others, you know, you can just hop in a chapter and kind of dig in and get a piece that you need at a time. Well, this this book, I don't want to kind of give it away, but it, I wrote it where it could also be turned into like a screenplay or movie because mm-hmm. it, it is pretty interesting what happened to us. I mean, there, there's a it, – it's a various – it's a hodgepodge of stories. Now, people pick it up and read – different parts um the movie i mean the the book starts off with us walking down the beach in dolphin island alabama and it goes along where we're holding hands and she's just lost Mm -hmm. and then something happens and i'll just say this much something happens and and she becomes herself again and then we we reminisce about various stories that happen along the way for example when we first moved to mississippi we didn't get a diagnosis until little rock and the company that i worked for uh, the power company moved us here and i uh, my my background is I have a computer science degree from the University of South Alabama. I've been in IT for 35 years, dealing with uh, Linux operating systems, and right now I'm in cybersecurity. So my background definitely is data. So we talk about all of those kind, of, a little bit of that. Uh, to answer your story, uh, to answer your question, it, it it talks about Kim with the Girl Scouts, it, it, Chapter Two. Uh, recollections, um, and I cover each of my children, Joseph and John and Carrie. Now, that's not their names. It's Kathy, Jesse, and Jonathan because I kind of wrote it in a way not to, you know, I just wanted to kind of get a little dictionary on that. 
chapter four, transition, what to do about nothing, detour of turnstile doctors. I'll give you one little story that's in the book that's pretty funny. There, there's a lot, a lot of it's humorous. But at mm-hmm. the same time, it talks about when I made the decision to have Kim's brain donated to, to Columbia University, where it resides now. And there's reasons for that. There's not enough brain tissue out there that, to do research, and we definitely need to change all that in this world. Uh, so we went, took Kim to a psychiatrist in Little Rock. They didn't know what was wrong with her. Um, they just didn't. So we went to a psychiatrist. We went up there and looked over at Little Rock. We like on the 10th floor. And he said, oh, she's doing fine. At the end of the uh, – about 30 minutes into the conversation, the doctor said, "Go, you go on and come back in 30 minutes. Go have lunch or whatever. And I come back, and there, we were coming – the elevator doors open. There's Kim, and there's this doctor who once had, you know, a tie was all – Chris suit and all that stuff, and he was disheveled looking, and he was just like telling me, whatever you do, whatever you do, don't let her drive. Uh Uh, It was just just one of those funny moments. And then at the end of the book, there's 12 chapters. At the end of the book, it talks about um, what the end really looks like. Now, when you start this journey, you're not asking or thinking about what what are you going to do with the body at the end. Mm-hmm. What do you do with, with somebody that has passed on? Well, do you just simply, um, you know, cremate them and then you move on with life? Or do you preserve the brain for future research with all the medical records? And that's my whole thing that, that I'm interested in is that all of these people worldwide that have, have this trending of data, what happens to it? Why aren't we collecting this information and, and researching it? you know, behaviors and all of these kind of things. And and there's stories in there about um, about how, you know, my children were affected. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if I answered that question or not. Um, there's not – the chapters are just chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. But, but under those are different stories that are – are designed to, to to have a point. Okay, I'll give you another example. My son uh, Joseph was about my my son was about fourteen, and he was in um, high school. And I'm kind of an activist, so I got involved with the local chapter of Alzheimer's Association, and we we're going to do a talk at the at the church at the Methodist Church. They allowed, you know they were going to let us do a talk about this kind of thing. So people from all over, from Hattiesburg, Vicksburg, all showed up. And But the day before, I got a call from his teacher that said, hey, your son's just laying his head on the on the desk. He's not paying attention in school. You know, we need to have a talk about his behavior. This was Joseph. So um, I said, okay, well, I'll come Friday. The meeting was Thursday. So I was at the meeting, and after it was all over with, I got a tap on the shoulder of a kind of an older lady, and she looked at me, and she says, I understand now. If I'd only known 30 years ago, things would have been different. And I kind of said, huh? Uh, she said, oh, yeah, I'm Joseph. I'm Joseph's teacher. Now I understand. Joseph would go to school, and he would put his head on the desk, not because he wasn't paying attention, but he was just so full of anxiety because of his mother's behavior that he he just he just didn't. It was just difficult for him, and, and so what do they do? It's a punitive system for these children of the lost is what I call them. Mm-hmm. And it's very important that we change our whole the whole way we think about how to manage these children that are children of terminal. It could be cancer. It could be ALS, anything, but these children, there are not enough questions being asked. So the book is a bunch of different stories like this. Uh, but they're all organized in, in a contiguous way to leading up to when she passed. So then after Kim passed away, what do you do after that? How do you pick up the pieces and go on? Well, there's things like grief share and things like that. In my case, I took a year off work and wrote – I mean, a year off, yeah, a year off of work and wrote this thing, which really – it took me like three years to write it because – if you think it's easy to write a book, no, no, this was the hardest work I've ever done because you can't just write something and then pick it up and 
oh, yeah, I should have had this word or that word or that phrase. So I wrote it and rewrote it and rewrote it to the point where it is now in its final form. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a it's a process. I've got a book in me, and I just I haven't uh, taken the time to pull it all together. I've got bits and pieces and stories, you know, that I've pulled together, so I understand where you're coming from. I think it's important that you talk about the autopsy because, uh, you know, we did that with my mom. You have to have that lined up because it has to be done within hours of the death. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, oh, you know, this isn't something you can think about afterwards because the process starts. So, you, you know, you really do have to sign up and get that done. And it is extremely helpful, um, you know, one, for families to know, but two, for from the research aspect. I mean, I remember talking with uh, Dr. Um, Bill Fry here in Minnesota, who heads up a, a memory care clinic through uh, Health East here, and, and they have a very large brain bank. And it was fascinating to hear him um, tell me, you know, and kind of decipher my mom's report for me, which he was kind enough to do. And, you know, my mom lived with dementia for 30 years. And one of the things he said he was really shocked to see was how, um, how her brain had shrunk. He had never seen a brain with that much atrophy in it. And he was very, he was very surprised. And yet he said, but Lori, you know, if she lived with it that long, this is, this is exactly what we should expect to see, you know, with this disease. And he, you know, he talked about there was some Louis body and some Parkinson's and, you know, she had a little bit of a shake, but it wasn't consistent. Um, And, you know, yet then she ended up being wheelchair bound. So then you don't see as much of of some of those things that might come into play as far as symptoms and mention some Louie body, which we really didn't see a whole lot of um, things going on there um, as far as symptoms. But again, you, you just don't know. There's, there's an awful lot to take in, especially, you know, when the disease um, hangs around as long as it, it does. And, you know, I think my mom lived as long as she did was because she was engaged still in, in the world that surrounded her. Um, you had mentioned, you know, the kind of the shuffle of doctors, which um, is very common. You know, people want to get a second opinion or they just don't feel comfortable with how this person communicates with them. And I highly encourage people to go ahead and do that. Or, you know, I, I was kind of chuckling when you were saying how kind of disheveled the doctor looked when he came back a half an hour later, like, oh, he finally gets what we're dealing with now, <laughs> you know? And I mean, yeah. you will have you will have some of those moments and it might be with another family member or a friend or whatever that, hey, you know, mom is fine. What are you talking about? Your crackers. And then all of a sudden, oh my goodness, you know, things are a little different when you stick around for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and those those are, are real things that happen with real families and friends. And I think the humor aspect is so critically important not to lose. Um, and it's not that you're laughing, you know, at the person with dementia. You're just laughing, you know, at the situation. And, you know, how many times, you know, before dementia hit, did you laugh over something silly, you know, that didn't make sense or whatever at the time that still exists. And the person with dementia typically will respond to that. And sometimes they'll be the one to start it as well. You know, they'll have a moment Mm -hmm. of clarity depending on where they are on the, on the spectrum of things. Um, You know, if the book were to kind of exceed your expectations you know, what What would you do with the proceeds? I know a lot of times, you know, authors are just trying to recoup the cost it, it um, took on them to make the book, you know, and get it to, through the development process and stuff. Um, do you have um, ideas of, of what you would do with, with, the, um, with the proceeds? Absolutely. And I'd like to dovetail um, to answer that question is first and foremost, I would ask a question for you, your audience to consider is, what is research? What does that mean? Mm-hmm. So when, when I think of research with my background, I think about actually understanding the data, understanding what – if you've got analog um, devices that's getting the um, 
information um, like the spinal fluid, what, what chemicals that make uh, that makes that up, and, it, and it, then it brings it into a database, an international database, and then you trim that along. That's my idea of research. But if you ask, and I won't pick it on any particular organization, but research them. Where is their focus? What is the, where does the each, if I give a dollar to, to a, a group, a cancer society, whatever it is, XYZ, I won't, I won't name any, what does the CEO make? Where is their focus? Okay, I'm, I'm saying that to say this. So my idea is that should it make money, which I pray that it does, it's more of a labor love, basically is a handbook to give to a family that says, here, read this. Read it again too. Laugh. Understand it's going. It's, you're not in it for the short haul. You're you're going to be in it for the long haul. And and then even after they pass away, there's repercussions. I'm going to get into that in just one second because I do have a lot to say about this particular subject. The next thing, the next really is is the children of the lost. I've said that before because writing a book is something, and I I, I would I thought it'd be easy, and it's not. It took me, like I said, three years. And having um, the parent of not three but four children, counting Kimberly, mm-hmm. uh, as her mind began reversing from the hands of times for a five-year-old, ten-year-old, and I coined the term daylight moments, all right? So what I want to talk about now is if there's one thing those find themselves in the same situation with children, specifically children, they should think really through carefully what to do with the children. If you're 40, 40-ish, 42, 48 years old, and you have young children, like in 2008, we went six years with Kim being undiagnosed. Mm-hmm. And so I sat with the counselor when we moved to Mississippi after she originally got moved uh, um, by this time, okay, six years later. During those six years, I went to a divorce attorney. I said, look, I can what do I do? And he says, well, you know, you just need a good old-fashioned divorce. What if that had been the case? Mm-hmm. What if I had divorced her with these young children? That's what's going on in our country with these attorneys and doctors and everything else. That's what they're looking at. They're not, they're not thinking it through. Before you get a divorce, and I think some states actually – before they're granted divorce, they have to look medically. I would challenge lawyers and attorneys to look before they get in a divorce. Let's look at the medical history, the genealogy of that person to see if they're susceptible to um, Alzheimer's because it's just so tragic. Now, with, with that said, um, what to do with the children? So shortly after 2008, I, I sat down with this counselor. It was a Christian counselor, and, and, and here were my choices that he gave me. Number one, farm out the children. And so by this time, six years later, this is the effects of, of this. My daughter was pregnant at that point. And mm-hmm. Before we moved from Little Rock to, to this Jackson area, um, we had a, we had one of the weddings, you know, a quick wedding type thing, and so here she is, 17, and the next thing you know, I've got her and her newly husband, and neither one of them are wet behind the ears, you know, and she's pregnant. So the first thing is far out John and Joseph. Um, put, the other choice, put Kimberly somewhere, like a home. And then mm-hmm. the third choice was to keep doing what I was doing. So what did I do? Oh, well, I just chose the third option. And I was glad I didn't divorce because it was – I don't think that would have been the right thing to do, but I didn't to answer that question. So there's consequences for any of these choices you make. In this mm-hmm. case, what you have by keeping her in a home or with a caregiver, uh, you could you could keep her in home and, and get like home health care or something like that was helpful. Um, but this, the, this means the end results are the same. Those little minds – an eight-year-old, a seven-year-old, and he's being bombarded with questions. Uh, one of the another story in the book is when we first moved here, John. I had to get him in school, so I had to go to the um, to the elementary school. He was he was halfway between fifth grade and sixth grade. It was like December, and I said, you know, she's got Alzheimer's. 
all the looks I got, they thought they thought that she would be contagious or something. I mean, the, mm-hmm. it was just the aura, the osmosis of it all that just blew my mind. But but the thing was that the first few few weeks of school, he he was at home. I pull up because I'm traveling all over Louisiana and everything, getting these systems switched from uh, Open VMS to Linux and that kind of thing. And uh, so Carrie's in charge and John, and so he's so proud to show up his homework. And, he, and I pull up, and before February, before I could even get pulled in, he, he's knocking on the window. And I roll down the window, and he says, look, Dad, Dad, look at my grades. Look at my grades. Well, here comes Mother Love, barefoot mm-hmm. in February, walking down the thing, and she, she kind of wet, uh, flails her hands. She does that mm-hmm. all the time. Where's my cigarettes? I need my cigarettes. Are you going to work today? I really want to need my cigarettes. Where have you been? I, I Mother love just has to have a cigarette. Do you have a coat? Do you have a cigarette? I mean, that that intense. And she just kind of pushes John out of the way. What does that do to a child? Yeah. And automatically, when you're a caregiver, you, you automatically are thrown, I learned this later, mm-hmm. into codependency, codependency. That's neither good nor bad. There is no really in the, in the, in the manual the psychology manual to say that being codependent is good or bad, it is just what it is. You are automatically codependent. The other thing that happens to children is called CEN, Childhood Emotional Neglect. Mm-hmm. So subsequently, when you're in this environment with children, you have an increase in teenage pregnancies, failing grades, addictions to drug and alcohol, leading to incarceration, juveniles, detentions, juvenile detentions, probation, jails, possibly prisons, and not to mention the suicide attempts. And, oh, believe me, I, I'm, I suffered them all uh, in mm-hmm. my family. It happens because it takes away – I don't even know how to explain it. There's my passion, okay? This is another reason I wrote this book because the children of the lost – they're our future generation, and I would say 50% of those, when you drive down the road and you come up on a red light, you see these kids. They're like 20 years old or 18 or 15 that are homeless. I believe 50% or more are victims of CEN, childhood emotional neglect. They're a child of somebody that had were terminal or some dysfunction in their family that they felt hopeless. There's no way mm-hmm. out of this. So they become... Um, they don't. They don't learn how to obey because the the main, the primary caregiver is so busy taking care of the chaos going on that they get less left behind. So mm-hmm. I had three children: an older daughter, a middle child, and the younger. And typically, it's the middle child and the older one kind of do well. The uh, younger one, I mean, honestly, truthfully, I got a call yesterday. My son, I've done all that I could do for him. My youngest one, all that I could do for him. But even now he suffers from that. And um, so he had to go to um, in and out of jail, uh, suicide attempts. He's, he was up in Memphis, and I got a call yesterday that he um, he got put on probation for t- going hot for meth. And, mm-hmm. that, um, and, and with that said, he walked away from the program. There's a movie on Amazon called um, Beautiful Boy that I would um, – I'm not promoting Amazon. I'm just saying it's a movie with Steve Carell that really gives you the feel, feeling of, of drug addiction and, and those kind of things. And I'm telling you that this book will help those that have this kind of uh, challenge to face. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's face it, um, the behavior of one with Alzheimer's or dementia is, is far from what even Hollywood can do. I'll mm-hmm. give you one example. Now, John had been incarcerated. Uh, again, when he was oh, about 15, he was down in um, on the coast, and I was living in Indiana, and and I you, you always have hope. You got to have hope. And I thought, well, you know what? I'm going to get John. Um, they're going to let him out. He'd been incarcerated for like I don't know a year, six months. One of the things the kids will do, or what they did with Mother Love, when I was off at work, they would go get her, and the kids would 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 bribe my children to t- walk her up to the package store to buy them beer. She didn't know mm-hmm. or trade her for cigarettes. So anyway, it was a, that kind of behavior that I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. So I went and got John, and I got him all set up to go to school. And um, it was Carmel, Indiana, one of the best schools, wonderful people. That um, I can't say enough about the school there and the uh, 
Medicaid, the different states or different areas um, in there, um, Sequoia was called, and then Midland Paces over in Topeka where we live later. But So I went and got him all the way down, and now this was winter time. It was like March, coming up through Memphis. My son had never seen snow. His eyes went big as saucers. Well, we got all the way to uh, Indiana. It was late. It was like a Saturday night or something. We were going to go to church the next day. I don't know what it was. It was late. And we just got in, and we're just kind of – I was trying to recover because if you travel with somebody with Alzheimer's, I'm telling you, man, oh, my gosh. I don't know. I, I'm, you probably know what I'm talking about, but yep. it's question after question after question after question. There's just so much medication you can give them, okay, mm-hmm. so much. And that night, I remember John was about 15 or 16. He was excited about school. We were having a conversation. I was laying in the bed. It was a bedroom scene. And Mother Love was downstairs. It was the townhouse. So she, she comes up there. And John and I were having a conversation. You know, I gave you the story a little bit before about how um, um, when he was a little boy, we, we couldn't even have a conversation because Mother Love would come in and interrupt with some craziness. But um, so – Mother Love's standing there, and I could see her lips quivering. She just wants to ask a question. I said, okay, okay, Kim, I can't stay. I can't take it. I can't take mm-hmm. any more. Did you take your medicine? Let's give you your medicine, whatever. I can't. One more question. If I get one more question out of you, I'm leaving. I'm getting in my car. I'm leaving. I don't, you'll never see me again. Now, be quiet, please. I need a little bit of peace. I've just driven 800 miles. Through the mm-hmm. ice and snow, literally. Please, Kim, hush. One more, not me. I mean, her. She just, just, she was just chomping at the bit to ask a question. I couldn't stop her, so she asked the question. I said, mm-hmm. "Whatever you do, I'm leaving. I'm leaving. Don't do it." So the question she asked was, "Can I go?" Mm-hmm. <laughs> Can I go? So I'm telling her. One more question, I'm leaving. Well, she's asking, can she go with me? <laughs> so, anyway, yeah. it, it just broke up all the humor. You know, I mean, it was, just, it was like a dam just broke after that point. Yeah. Um, so, that's what I would do with the proceeds is use the money to help uh, with these children. So, counseling for children in a social or schools need to be totally changed the way they're doing it in high school and junior. The counselors or need to have an education in this, mm-hmm. you know, before they become a counselor, school counselor, they need to understand, little Johnny lady said on this, doesn't mean that he's just been up playing video games all night long. They need to understand how to communicate. Yeah. The other thing is that we need an international database to trend this data. So mm-hmm. I know time's getting short here, so I'll, I'll, I'm going to stop right there as far as answer. You may have other questions, so. Okay, well, we've got a caller online, and so let me just pull them in and see. Sometimes people just call by phone to listen, but others have questions. So I'm going to pull in the person at a 0952 number. 0952, you're live and on the air. Did you have a question or a comment? Did you want to talk? And it's okay if you don't want to, but I want to give you the opportunity if you did have a question. Okay. Apparently they're just Laurie. listening. Oops, wait Laurie. a second. Yep. Uh-huh. Oh, just a second. I put you on mute because I thought you weren't going to answer. So go ahead. You're live now. Me? Or... Uh-huh. Yep. Okay. I have been here since the very beginning of the of the talk. Very interesting. So I was just listening and <laughs> wouldn't put a word in, and then now I'm kind of lost. Hi, Joe. Um, hey. That's great. That's great writing. That's great. Um, um, that's very inspirational. Uh, I have um, dementia. I had early onset at 57. Um, I can't count. I think it was seven years ago. <laughs> but um, I also have a spine injury, so um, my my spine and my leg right now is not working too well. Um, I, I'm just thinking about everything you've said. And uh, in my mind, I was thinking, you know, 
who would think, okay, I come from very far away, that you would come to another country and uh, you're looking for good things to happen, who would think that you would come so far and get dementia? <laughs> and also, yeah. yeah, also with your wife, you know, I mean, um, there there has to be time. You are so patient, but there has to be time when the, you just want to just, just like knock your head on the wall and say, what mm-hmm. on earth is wrong with her? You know, it has to yeah. be because when you were saying about divorce, um, I have recently moved out to a single story, a very small place, which is more manageable for me. I live in a very, um, very big Victorian home. So we've been going back and forth about this. And I asked myself, am I going crazy? No, I'm not going crazy because people with dementia, whoever are listening in or uh, have the disease, um, be kind to yourself. Um, it is okay that, you know, you don't live like everybody else. Like you, you cannot manage. You can manage better with a smaller place. So I just moved out mm-hmm. recently, and then I was thinking to myself, have I been unfair to my husband? Has, you know, have I, because of my disease, been such a different person that I didn't see myself as being um, a difficult person? Do you think that um, living with him, that you you had a glimpse or glimpses of of moments when she felt that way, early days as she was, you know, as she as the progression went on. Did you, you know, I, I have to I have to answer that. Um, I'm going to be totally straight with you. Sometimes you just have to cry, mm-hmm. and you have to be kind to yourself. And know that mm-hmm. it's not your fault. It's not them. The most important thing that I learned through it all and even now, I mean, it's tough. It's raw. I mean, who wants to tell the world their son is has been tempted to suicide? I mean, there was a time I pulled a, a, a loaded shotgun out of his hand. He had it cocked in his, in his head. I mean, um, one time I came home with, with him – laying on the floor, and he had taken 30, um, they, they call them triple C's, cold medicine, because he just couldn't take it, the stress anymore. There are so many different ways, things that we, you think about, did, did I do that to him, or did he, he, it was just a cry for help. But to answer your question, all of that, the only way I got through it, was, there's three things, faith, hope, and love, and love is the most important thing. You, it's not their fault. It's not your fault. It's it's just the way it is. And being able to surround yourself with people that can um, that understand that, or, or they say I can help. Give them a checklist. Give it to them. So when, when in the heat of the night, when I saw that Kim was just out of her mind or whatever, the only thing I could do is. is the medications are your friends. They're not drugs. They're medications. Medications, exercise, music, and I would really recommend getting them a little puppy or dog. I would recommend you get a little puppy, a dog. That's what my recommendation to you would be. I have one. I went and got okay. one about two years okay. ago. I felt like, you know, I'm a cat person, but I, at this point in time, I really need a dog, and I went like, have I really, really lost it? Because I am not a dog person, but <laughs> I'm glad I did it. Because when there's nobody around, I could talk to Teddy, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, it that's wouldn't right. weird, like I'm talking to the wall, or I'm talking to to my clothing that's hanging mm-hmm. there, you know. But at least I'm talking to Teddy. Somebody look at me while I'm talking to my dog on the porch. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't be talking to my plants, or you know. So, um, so that's all good and. Uh, Yes, so when I moved out, um, I consulted an uh, attorney. Oh, of course, first thing is retainer's fee. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because I wasn't sure what I wanted to do because I have dementia. So I I talked to her, then I told her, um, no, it's not going, it's not her, it's not her battle, it's not her, I just, you know, and and, uh, she's so busy typing away. 
she's not I don't know if she's listening to me. So I said, Wait a minute. I said, Can you just look me in the eye while you're talking to me? Um I said, I do not want a divorce. Right. Because I've got to mm-hmm. think about this. I want this is what I want. She says, You want a, uh what did she say? A legal separation. I said, No. I want one year, one year of separation. Okay? After that we talk because I I believe that I'm I'm not a um I'm not for divorce. I've had um past relationships where things didn't work out. But I'm not for divorce, so I say I want to try this. We're going yeah. to be separated for one year, okay? And uh, there's there's a lot of good in 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 my husband and I'm sure in myself. And uh, <laughs> I went like, well, um we'll be separated for a year and we'll see what happens. I think well, that's fair. Know, I was just going to pop in and say, because we're, we're getting close time. I've got about three minutes left and this is a great conversation. So thank you, Kate, for calling in and thank you, Joe, for all the information you've gotten. I want to note a couple of things. You had asked Joe, was there times where he just wanted to smack his head against the wall and, you know, mm-hmm. and he, he was honest with that. But I'm sure there's times the person with dementia wants to just smack their head against the wall, too. This is an even yes. game of, of emotions on both sides. And I think everybody yes. has to understand that. And, um, you know, talking about, you know, being fluid and, you know, Joe mentioning, you know, faith, love, and hope, you know, kind of got him through this journey. It's a it's a difficult journey, and none of us are perfect, and none of us are going to ever be perfect, and yet we seem to strive to be the perfect family and do everything perfectly. Well, we didn't before dementia, and so you know, the likelihood of us doing it during dementia, I think, goes oh, yeah. you know, <laughs> with all of that. So we do have to be kind to ourselves. We have to be kind to who we're caring for. We have to consciously look at how is this affecting everybody and and have open conversations you know open conversations can alleviate some of that stress and help people understand what's going on with the next person now again a person with dementia may or may not be able to comprehend what is being said you know it just depends on where somebody is in the in the spectrum of the disease and I mean, there were moments, my mom, even in the end stages, had really solid moments of clarity that just blew me away. And you never know when those moments are going to hit. So, you know, I want to thank you both for for being part of this show. I want to thank our listeners. And I want to encourage people to talk. Tell your story. You know, be brave because other people need to hear it and it will help their journey. And I think it's a little cathartic to to be able to say you know i have I, i've learned, I've learned during this process um i also want you to be able to get joe's book again living with thunder alzheimer's untold uh, a family's journey you can get that on amazon you can just look it up by the title or um, put in joe's name uh and that's a joe Last name is B-R-A-Z-E-A-L. Um, and you can email him if you have any questions or comments at J-A and then B-R-A-Z-E-A-L at uh, gmail.com. Or feel free to reach out to him on Facebook as well. Um, last thing I'm going to mention here real quick is uh, Joe had given me a YouTube video called My Name is Lisa, which I've seen before, and it's excellent. And it really does give an example of what families go through with somebody with early onset. So check out YouTube, My Name is Lisa. I want to wish everybody a happy holiday season, and I hope that you're able to join us on Thursday. Again, if you can't listen when we're live, Everything is in the archives. Stay safe, everyone, and we'll talk soon. Bye now. Thank you, Laurie.